These are fun, off-the-cuff discussions on movies and streaming series, both new and old. Together, we'll attempt to bridge the gap between Hollywood Industry Insider and the casual viewer. This is Alec. And I'm Ben. And you're listening to the Cinema A to B Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cinema A to B. Today, we're going to be talking about the 2002 film, The Born Identity. Doug Lyman starts a franchise. So, Ben, how did you feel about this? I loved it then, and I love it now. And I, I just watched this probably about a week ago, and I don't know what precipitated it. It just, it was, I, I think I saw it available on Prime, and it's aged really rather, rather well. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it, it's kind of the OG that kicked this thing back off. Um, I mean, I, you had Mission Impossible in like mm-hmm. 95, 96. And then, and then MI2, I think preceded this as well. But this, this feels like it, it's definitely part of the conversation of kicking the spy stuff off. And, and really it feels like they kind of had a template then for Daniel Craig's bond films a few years later. Mm-hmm. Like it, yeah. It feels like Casino Royale definitely took some notes. So this movie's in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. I don't think I knew I, that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's in there. Um, it fluctuates sometimes in the top 15, but it's, it has slowly gotten into the top 10 for many different reasons. I really like this film. So you brought up, you know, the Mission Impossible series, especially MI2 is a little outlandish you know, all the, the, the face different stuff like this felt a very grounded, very like could actually happen. Like there's not much that happens in this movie that I don't think could happen like realistically. And this is also the time of like Pierce Brosnan as, as, as bond. So you had all the gadgets, all the fun stuff. I mean, obviously we are far away from, well, not far away, but several years away from Goldeneye, and where, you know, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, you know, they kind of just started to get crazier and crazier and crazier. And so the Mission Impossible. So this, I felt like definitely grounds it. And like you said, brings the Daniel Craig version of James Bond kind of back into the fold of like, hey, let's not go too out there. Let's get something more believable. But anyways, uh, beyond that, obviously, I think Damon is great in this role. And there's so much stuff that I think Doug Lyman did the director did great with this movie and you know, it was his first shot. I mean, this is the only born film that has any Academy award nominations and has had three and it won all three, which is great. Cause I, this is my favorite of the born films. Um, unfortunately got rid of Lyman when they switched to supremacy and onwards and gave it to Paul Greengrass, which I thought was a huge, huge mistake, but there was tons of, on-set problems and issues. And I guess Lyman is a kind of a chaotic director. Um, and so people didn't like him. Um, but, but other than that, like this, this film just fun feels fun is not the right word, but it just, it engages me and brings me along with his story and just really wants me to con- continue to watch it. Um, and I see that I watch this movie probably once a year. This is on a rotation for me where I just pop it in and just, you know, give another gander and, and enjoy myself. Plus I love his orange sweater that he has. And I just, I want that thing. And every time I see it, I'm just like, where can I find that orange sweater? Just want to 
I just want it. It's great. Probably Amazon now. Yeah. Yeah, it is tremendous. And I want to speak to Doug Lyman for a little bit. He is a, just a chameleon of a director. There's really not a genre that he can't do and do at a high level. I mean, this is the guy that kind of burst on the scene with swingers basically Mm -hmm. told Favreau and, and Vince Vaughn, we can make this movie for a lot less than you're thinking, but you're going to have to like, let me do it my way. And so he's a very resourceful director and it shows in something like this, where he's given even more budget. He seems to make the most of it at every turn. And I really like Lyman as a director and, you know, he did continue to serve as an executive producer on the Bourne sequels. So he wasn't completely out of the fold, but yeah, the, the sequels are really missing his, his hand. And I, and I like, I like Greengrass's direction, but I hate his camera work. So mm-hmm. this is the Bourne film. That's just much easier to watch. That's not going to induce motion sickness the way that supremacy did. Um, like I said, I did have a chance to watch it. Like I'm only like a week removed and I was just enthralled again the entire time The the thing is just exquisitely paced. The pacing is, is perfect. The edit is spot on. The, the score is as haunting as it was. Then it's aged really rather well. Mm-hmm. And, and John Powell, the yeah, composer, is just yeah. has gone on and done now, so much. When I pulled this up on IMDb after I watched it, I had this realization. I was like, oh, this is starting to make so much sense why this is so good. <laughs> because one of the writers is Tony, Tony Gilroy. Gilroy. <laughs> yep, yeah. exactly. It's really interesting to go back and start to see patterns emerge with writing on some movies that I enjoy that I didn't pay attention to that in the past. I didn't. I didn't care who the writer was when I saw this in 02, but now I do. And it's like, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. It is, well, and it's a very loose adaptation, but really, so what I you know read about it was that Lyman had done kind of like a tr- quick, like treatment, couple page treatment of like his idea, his adaptation of it. And then and he told Gilroy, don't read the book here, just base your story off of this and gave him his little small treatment, his, his little mock-up. And so then Tony just wrote off of that. So it's very loosely based on the book. It's the only one actually has any resemblance to the book. The the other ones are basically just the name of it. But I mean that some of it's difficult, but just because obviously he's dealing with the jackal in the book and the, you know, Soviet union is still a thing. And this is obviously, you know, post fall of the the Soviet empire. So things got to kind of change after a little bit, but Going back just real quick, I this is my biggest pet peeve with the Paul Greengrass ones, and we're going to stop, you know, hashing too much. But you talked about the frenetic camera work. And what I always liken it to is like in this one, there is cuts in the fight scenes, but they use your like medium cut to medium cut to medium cut, not this up close where you have no idea what's going on. You just see like an arm flail or something like you can actually see what's going on. And I was like, this is a government trained fighter you know, this is a government trained spy. Like his moves are concise. His moves are planned out or muscle memory. Like they're not going to be that frenetic. They're going to be very much more kind of like, obviously 
And in this scenario, he's not really thinking. He's just acting on instinct and acting on training and what is, you know, muscle memory. And so it's, you're going to want that far away shot. You want it to look clean and crisp and kind of know what's going on because it's not this just like, oh, I'm just going to get in there and throw hands and hopefully I come out on top. You know, like that's not what, what Bourne does. Like he's, like he knows things about himself. And that's why I really like the Doug Lyman fight scenes so much better than anything else that came came afterwards yeah and they establish it really well when he's asleep on that park bench Mm -hmm. in switzerland and they come up the police local police come up on him and the choreography was really really good and and damon handled it really well and and because it wasn't that scene's really neat because it's not just acting or it's not just choreography there's some acting there as well he's got a He's got to do the move, but do it involuntarily. And then there's that wonderful scene where he like basically just comes to holding the handgun and realizes that was all muscle memory and, and then, you know, breaks it apart and runs away. Um, I do, I do love, and we've talked about this, that Damon made the decision to take up boxing well, at the behest of, at the behest of Lyman, because he's like, it's like, I want you to be able to one, know what it's like to get hit in the face or get hit, you know, you know, be, be afraid to be hit in the face kind of a thing. Cause he's like, there's a different feel boxers have about getting into a fight of like, I've been hit. I've, I know what it feels like. I know what I can take. And he's like, there's also a grace and movement, um, that they, you know, that they do, that they have that kind of confidence level, um, that you get supposedly from being a boxer. Now that's not what they're doing. Obviously there's two different fight, um, things. One's like a Filipino one called Kali, I think, um, that's a lot of the fight sequences and what he's doing is, um, that that's what he got trained in for like a couple months before. Yeah. But boxing helps you with your stance and your footwork mostly. And then, yeah, just the, his physique kind of that leaned out. He's, he's not as gaunt as he was in some other roles, but he's still pretty gaunt. But that that's convincing. Like it feels like his fitness levels where it would need to be, where it makes sense. I it's really interesting though. You you look at Damon leading up to this, and there was really no indication that he would be the right casting choice to play Bourne. And so they really did kind of take a flyer on him. And obviously he he just completely knocks it out of the park and Absolutely. turns it into a pretty good, really relatively good franchise, a very successful franchise. I, I've got my own opinions on kind of where the sequels go, but he's not the problem. Like Matt Damon's never the issue playing Bourne. He's like, he's incredible (laughs) in every outing. It just, the scripts aren't as good. And that's tight. And I did. Yeah. I don't particularly care for the direction, but the rest of this cast is really good though. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Chris Cooper is a really nice casting choice to play kind of his antagonist kind of a yeah, his foil. And then this was this was back in a time with Clive Owen where I thought he had kind of the inside channel to be Bond following mm-hmm. uh, Pierce. I mean, he was heavily rumored. So mm-hmm. he's pretty he's still iconic as the professor. I mean, that that whole sequence in the in the field oh, has is has a fantastic line at the end of it too. When he, when he looks him up, 
see what they take from us or something. Look what they make lines, you whatever. give. Look what, yeah, yeah, look what they yeah. make you give. You know, and then they do the call back there. And I think it's also made him that uh, Bourne says it to the other guy of look what they make you give. So it's a nice call back that they brought, brought that back. But let's just talk about the, the, the car chase sequence was done by the same people who did the Ronin car chase sequence in Paris. I mean, you, and you could tell like there's there's a lot of like there's a lot of the same feeling to it. And it's done really well, too. Like it's it just looks great. Um, and at least in my regard, it's obviously Ronan still tops in, a, in regards to car chase. But this is definitely going to be up there as a really great, you know, in my opinion, in a good. No, good it is. Chase. It is. And it's but it kind of suffers for the masses. It kind of suffers from the same issue as a Ronin chases, which is that the cars just aren't all that they're they're not really that and especially in born that little i don't even know what that thing is <laughs> that they're in is it a mini or yeah. I, I don't know what it is but it's it's not impressive but the chase yeah the chase itself is is yeah. great i see i think i think having that kind of crappy car makes the chase scene that much better that he's able to still kind of put this. especially when he's like he's like hey do you take care of your car like i felt like the brakes were a little splashy or something i forget exactly what he says like right before he's like felt a little bit like you know wobbly or something you know beforehand and then he basically just not doesn't wreck the car but he just oh yeah the only the only unbelievable thing though in that is when they go down that staircase in that car there's that suspension <laughs> wouldn't last three stairs <laughs> let alone not the enough. run yeah it's not no, it's no. not to keep going obviously you mentioned cooper and clive owen and mm. and franca right. is tremendous and i remember the first thing i ever saw her in was that was it run lola run I didn't really see her in much at following, you know, her short, short lived appearance in, um, born supremacy, <laughs> but, but she's really good here. And she's not yeah. that she's that nice mix of kind of European cosmopolitan. Mm. Yeah. I think it is a nice casting choice, very unconventional and much like Damon's kind of unconventional compared to, I'm sure the, the laundry list of actors that would have been up for the role. The cast is solid. It's not now it's like you've got, you know, I guess I, I don't know if I'd call Cooper an A-lister, but he's definitely one of the great character actors mm -hmm. ever. And, and Clive Owens, you know, had his kind of had his day and he's still, yeah, he's, he's still around, but your window, and he's still great. in what he does, he is, but, but your window, did. your window is not everybody's able to be Matt Damon and stay in the, in the limelight, the entire, like basically most of his career. Yeah. Well, and he's, and Damon was doing great because obviously Oh one was oceans 11. So he started off that franchise. Oh two Jason. Bourne. This is what solidifies got, it though. This, yeah. this is what shoots him into oh, yeah. the stratosphere of, of a list well, talent. Because oceans was too close to what he'd already been doing. It well, and it was an know. ensemble piece too. Yeah. He's one of the major players. He's probably technically, he's like the number three player in, oceans but this is the role that to me kind of mm -hmm. really made him apparently they offered it to brad pitt first i could before see they offered it to i could Damon. see that um, but he turned it down to do spy game so you did another spy movie which isn't a bad Just, well, it's not a bad film no i enjoy oh, spy game actually it, yeah I, with redford yeah, I re yeah, yeah that's that's a, fantastic it is a good film um yeah i can't really and you get to work with Robert Redford. I see. That's why he did that. I'm sure. 
Yeah. That's why I probably turned this down, but I'm glad because, because I f- feel like it would be a very different film with Brad Pitt in it, as opposed to Damon. Cause you know, Brad Pitt, he was Brad Pitt was Brad Pitt would have gone into this. Like he was already stratosphere, a list actor at that point where Damon was still kind of rising. So he brought with it a little bit of that meekness, a little bit of that, you know, unsurety of himself. That's not really, really a word probably, but unsureness of himself into this role. And I think that kind of really worked for a character who doesn't know who he is and kind of has slowly, you know, learning that journey as well. Yeah. And obviously Don Lyman got to work with Brad Pitt and Mr. And Mrs. Smith later on anyways. So that's right. Had to do that spy movie with him. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the cinematography in this is very, very good, more conventional. I don't even know if this was digitally color corrected when it first came in theaters. I mean, they were digitally color correcting movies then. Cause if the first digitally color corrected movie was uh, Oh brother, where art thou? Mm-hmm. But then there, over the ensuing years, and that was like 90, 98 or 99, I think, or maybe 2000. So in the ensuing years, like some films are being digitally color timed and then some aren't. This looks more like it's maybe not, but so the cinematographer is a gentleman by the name of Oliver Wood, and he actually just passed away um, in February, like last February. But, um, and his, his last, his last credit was, uh, it's Morbin time. <laughs> it was, it was, more, it was Morbius. <laughs> so he went out with Morbius, oh, but. But he's got a good track. Oh, yeah. Like great looking films. Yeah. He was a DP on um, like 53 episodes of Miami Vice which is, was an exquisitely shot television show. And obviously this face off U five, seven, one. He did, he did shoot the born supremacy. And I got to wonder, was he frustrated having to go from the way he shot born identity in more medium, medium wides to like, extreme close up <laughs> for supremacy and ultimatum. I don't know. That would be frustrating to me. Yeah. To jump into that style and then see it and not only see that, okay, everything's extreme close up, but now it's just being chopped up in the edit. So, all right, that's the last I'm going to mention of, uh, of supremacy or <laughs> ultimatum. Cause it's just frustrating because I actually really yeah. like some of the emotional beats in uh, supremacy where he has to kind of come to terms with the, collateral damage he's caused from previous, uh, previous missions. I thought that's kind of a strength of that film, but identity still is good. As good as advertised, even, uh, 21 years removed. I was really sad. Cause I, obviously I have a lot of love for Doug Lyman. Um, uh, you know, swingers has a very special place in my heart for me. And so, like, I was sad to leave him going. I always wonder what it would lo- be like if they they continued. But, anyways, he did a gr- great job with this film. There's not the acting. I think is absolutely everyone puts out a stellar perf- stellar performance. There's not anyone here that I really feel like is terrible. Um, and he was able to do some really cool things, like the scene where they're in the U.S. Embassy, and he's like, like going through it and trying to get. That's my favorite. Or That's my favorite scene in the whole movie. 
Well, there's a reason because he actually those are the actual embassy U.S. Marines that he's using that are clearing the space. So he didn't have enough like money for extras or didn't have time to find some. So like he just talked to them, and so they were like, "Yeah, we'll do this." And so they actually did like their how they would clear the embassy and do all that. And so it looks fantastic. So it's I mean, there's little little small things of of you know I was reading an article a long time ago about uh, how he was very chaotic and how he would kind of change things on the fly. And he was like, everyone would consider him super disorganized and he would like throw away the shooting schedule or he'd change things or, and then he was really angry and like the producer and stuff like that. And so like he had to start telling Damon his ideas. So Damon would go to the producer and, and say, Hey, what if we did this? Because the, the producer was like, no, we're not changing this thing again, Doug. And so, yeah, but even so much so like he apparently forgot to shoot one or he, he missed it a scene at the, uh, the ending of the movie where basically Damon is talking with, with Clive and something got messed up in the shot or whatever. And so he's like, I need to shoot it again. And the producer was just done with Doug. And he was like, nope, we're not shooting it. And luckily enough that Doug actually had uh, was doing camera operation already. And so he just grabbed a camera and grabbed Clive and grabbed Matt and just shot the scene himself. They for do like what a you got to like do. Four minutes. Yeah. Yeah. They, not everybody can be uh, Christopher Nolan and no. have it mapped out in his in his head. Not, but, but I don't think Lyman shoots like an overabundance of takes either. So no, it's not, but <laughs> yeah, th- I think that approach worked fine for swingers. Cause they only had like three or $400,000 to work with. So <laughs> just <laughs> get what we can get. But yeah, a little different with it. a studio picture like born, but I can't argue with the results. It's tremendous. It's tremendous. You wonder I was kind of thinking back to our discussion about the matrix. Like I don't think the born sequels are as bad as the matrix sequels, but no, you still wonder like if this was the only one, if this is just the standalone, is it, is it held in high regard or did, but you know, I say that, but I know, I know some folks that their favorite entries supremacy or ultimatum. Mm-hmm. They're yep. just not as just affected by the shaky cam like I am. So they, they actually prefer those movies. So yeah, it's a, it's a really good franchise. I think it's, I think it's done. I don't think, I know Damon was super frustrated with like the last, the last entry, the, like the, the script was yeah. just, he knew yeah. he was like attached to a, basically a dead duck <laughs> for the, like he said at one point they had a good script and then it just got gutted basically. So mm. It happens. Yeah, it, and that's the problem that happens so much. I mean, you could, you talk about Indiana Jones and the, the one that should not be named of Harrison Ford and Spielberg. were just like, all right, if this is the one that Lucas is going to sign off. Let's just do it. Let's get it done. And it was trash. So luckily they were able to kind of do another last one to kind of send it off on a, a better, better footing. But maybe Damon will get that. Maybe old Damon will play an older, older, you know, Jason Bourne. Yeah, I don't know. What never made sense to me was the why didn't he have like some sort of family or home to go back to? Like, but I don't know. Now I think they should just reboot it and actually do it as a series and stay stick close to the source material and just make it period, make it a period piece. Uh, that's expensive, buddy. 
Hey, it's very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I want what I want, and I want it now. I know. I know. Oh, this. So, I, I, I feel like they build the tension in this um, really well, and you get to a couple points of like quiet, and you get a couple points that you can kind of rest and. Then it kind of jams you right back into it. Um, obviously, the apartment fight scene is phenomenal, in my opinion. It's where he's attacking him with the pen. Just it just looks so good, even now. In with everything else that's going on, it's still shot so well. It looks fantastic. Like supposedly they rehearsed that thing for like a month or two to get everything down for that fight sequence. And the guy he's actually fighting is supposedly his, one of his trainers. So see, that's cool. Which, which I helps. Yeah. I, I approve of that whole method. I just, I love, I love Marie's line though. <laughs> it's like he threw himself out of the window. What, why would he do that? <laughs> why would somebody do that? Yeah. But, but why, why would someone do that? You don't know. Like we don't know. As the audience, I mean, we kind of have an idea, maybe. The thing, though, with this movie that they, it's so cool, but they never really explore it well in any of the sequels much, is that that wonderful montage where you have all of those agents over the globe being notified. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Rome. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. This. <laughs> I can't remember. The Obviously Paris. Paris. Yeah. Well, no, he, he London, was Paris. Bro. London, I think, was another one. I don't, oh, what yeah. was the, what was the one, the main guy, they don't, the thing is he was like the main assassin in the book and they just gave him like a throwaway role at the end, basically. Oh, he's, he's the jackal, the guy that kills, kills Conklin, that kills Cooper at the end. That was, oh, he was yeah. supposed to be the big, his big rival, um, mm. assassin, but he was kind of relegated to just cleaning up the mess at the end, which was kind of a shame, but I forget which, I forget which city he was in. Yeah. It's been a while since I've, well, I saw a week ago and I can't remember. So yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, there's so much with this mo- with this movie. So, I mean, it does, it, it definitely has, I, how do I say this? It, it definitely feels very European. I mean, obviously they shot in Europe. So I mean, like it would be, but it has that like almost foreign film it does to it and feel that feeling to it. Like it, very similar. As much as <laughs> me as an American. Think it's yeah. Got a foreign feel to it. <laughs> but like, I, like I feel that same way about Ronan, like what we talked about earlier, like it, like it, again, there's a lot that this film does that reminds me a lot of Ronan. Obviously it's, you know, it happens a lot of it in France as well. So in mean, different cities, obviously, but it just, see, it, I love it kind of, I love this stuff and it can't be coincidence that like three of my favorite iterations of this kind of assassin spy on spy kind of stuff, which is this Ronan and then day of the Jackal. Oh yeah. From I think 1973. Yeah. Or I don't know exactly what the Yeah. 73 or 74. Not the Jackal. Not the new one. They remade yeah, it with yeah. Bruce Willis. I'm talking about the original one, but it's set in mm-hmm. Paris too, as amongst other countries as he travels around uh, Europe to plan this this assassination attempt on uh, De Gaulle. And we should probably discuss that 
that movie. Um, it's, I'm okay with that. It's obscure, but it's tremendous. It's tremendous. But it can't be a mistake that they're all set in, in Paris. I think I think Paris is is this nice locale of like East meets West as far mm-hmm. as Europe. Um, yeah. it's, it would either, well, you'd either be, it'd either be that or Berlin. Yeah. And well, and Lyman likes it enough. I mean, he goes back to Paris and edge of tomorrow with Tom Cruise. That's right. So yeah, like that's, which is a of, tremendous film too. Oh my God. They were going to have to do that film as well. Yeah. I want to go real quick side story about the day of the Jackal. So my dad loves that film and he showed it to me pretty early on. I think it was like 12 or 13, maybe, uh, maybe little, 11, little young, early on. <laughs> Little, little young. Well, especially when the girl pops out of the cake. <laughs> he just kind of looked at me. He looked at me after that happened. He goes, don't tell your mom. <laughs> we just kind of moved on. <laughs> Looks very European in that regard. Yeah. Yes, it is very European in that regard. He was just like, don't tell your mom about this. <laughs> so, Dad, when you're listening, I didn't tell her. I, I promise. <laughs> and I don't think she listens to the podcast. So, No, <laughs> no it's a, it's a uh-huh. good flick. And... And yeah, you're right. It, it's it's not just set in European. It feels it feels very mm-hmm. very European, very cosmopolitan, and does a credit to using Paris as a backdrop. And and yeah. what Marseille as well. Marseille, Zurich, uh, Paris, and then obviously uh, I'm going to say the ending farm sequence, like. Damon, Damon's physicality changes from earlier on, like where he's unsure of himself at the end, like when he's walking around with a shotgun and he's doing all those kind of things, he's definitely kind of, while he's still not sure of who he is, he's sure of his capabilities. And just again, the physicality of it, Damon portrays that change. Like it is very noticeable of how he's walking as opposed to how he was earlier in the film. And I think it's one of those small things that Damon does that transforms him into his character of like, he's able to kind of make those adjustments as the film goes on, as the story goes on, or from film to film, he changes his physicality of how he walks or talks or moves his arms. It, I don't mind it. Cause it kind of conveys that the character is just really not completely aware of who he is and what he's doing, but he has that way of kind of walking around and standing around in the first half of the movie with his hands kind of in front of him, like down at yeah. his sides, kind of, almost a real awkward stance. And that does go away because you're yeah. right. By the time he's at the farm and he's got that double barrel shotgun, he just shoots the propane tank and he doesn't even like duck to walk away. He knows that the black cloud of smoke is perfect to obscure him. And he's just, and then he goes into, when he goes into like a sprint, it's real, yeah. it's real commanding and, and very direct. Yeah. I, I like the way he moves and Lyman must've, screen tested him for that to see that if he had the physicality, you know, and didn't look hilarious running like so many actors do. Cause not, not everybody can run like Tom Cruise <laughs> who just oh insists on running everywhere. But he does the movie star run the best, obviously. I mean, yeah. And, t- and Tom was, Tom was actually really good athlete uh, all mm. the way back to yeah, high school. But yeah, Damon, Damon fits the bill got himself in shape, stayed in shape for all the sequels, completely believable. Doesn't have to wonder about trying to play bond. Cause he's born. Yeah. He'll always be born. He will. Yeah. Cause what they had, Oh my goodness. What's his name? 
Hawkeye, the guy who played uh, Jeremy Renner. Renner, yeah. They tried. Born Legacy. Yeah, obviously, he, yeah. He wasn't born, obviously, but no. he was someone, someone supposed else. supposed to be from this, kinda, like an offshoot of the program or something, but. Yeah. Which was one of the things, like the other ones, I know we didn't talk about it, but like, it felt like every stinking new installment had a new version of Treadstone. I'm like, at this point, can we just call it, continue to call it Treadstone? Like, why is it now, you know, this? And well, yeah, but at the, at the end of, <laughs> I love the scene with Brian Cox. I love Brian Cox, by the way. Oh yeah, he's great. And he's like. Yeah, uh, Treadstone was more of a game program, and frankly, we've <laughs> already terminated. What I'd like you to take a look at is Blackbriar. <laughs> we think I guess this is actually got, probably this realistic. This has got real capabilities. You know, we really feel good it's, about Blackbriar. <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. Oh, that's probably actually re- more realistic than in my head of what it should have been. But yeah, oh, and, and we can't not talk about how good the the end ending music track for these oh, movies is and like even though they reuse it like it's always it's just so good though i mean like why why change it like i mean that's the theme i mean powell hits it like as i john powell did all three i believe uh for the composing of the music and i think each one he got better like there's like actually for supremacy, my, that's my favorite of his soundtracks of the three films. Like that one, I actually will listen to more than identity as much as I really like identity. There's something yeah, about but the, supremacy. The end track is actually, but isn't, it's not Powell. It's Moby. It's extreme ways. That's right. That's right. That's it's, right. It always, oh goes, it always zing. You know, it, it's, it, he always <laughs> like in, in born supremacy, he's like, you look tired, you know, <laughs> and then the music yeah. kicks in. But yeah. And the end, I distinctly remember the first time I saw this being really impressed with the, the end title sequence mm-hmm. that hadn't, hadn't seen one done kind of that slick in a while. I'm trying to think and extreme oh ways goodness. is playing by Moby over it. Yeah. And they, I think they, they end all of them with that song. I'm almost it makes sense. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think they do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, Sorry, it's, it's back a to me. Powell it's been- song right up till the end. And then as soon as the right close to where the end credit starts is when extreme ways will kick in. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a very, they've, they've got a formula, which I appreciate <laughs> that. Of. I, I like things that are, you know, they feel like a serial. Again, it, it, it feels like a, like a spy action film, but it feels a lot more of like a, the thriller spy with some action as opposed to, you know, even less so than a, James Bond or a mission impossible. Like it feels a lot more of kind of more thought provoking or more, let's talk about, you know, something in society kind of a feel to it, as opposed to, Hey, let's blow things up. And this guy gets with women and, you know, does other things. So I think obviously some of it is the fact that he's on the run and not so much kind of backed by a large government. And so he's kind of fighting off authority as opposed to being part of the authority. Right. But, so I gave it gives it that kind of more underdog feel to it, but I I just love how this this movie opens with him just floating in the water as well, where it can you know completely different of just that that little signal and the shot from below, mm-hmm. and then the and the Powell score that underscore haunting underscore yeah. running yeah it's it opens strong it's as yeah, it it's does. a strong film opening and I. You know, I think I think the way movies end are probably more important, but 
the way you begin is, is up there as well. And this is fortunate to do both well and doesn't have a lot of downtime. And even the, um, there aren't any like real dragged out moments of exposition in this movie either, because the plot lends itself to not having to do a bunch of exposition. The guy Mm -hmm. doesn't know who he is. We don't, we don't either. And so you're just learning bits and pieces right along with the main character. Like you're not given, you're not really given that over the overhead view. Mm -hmm. You've got a choice when you make a movie, when you write of whether you clue the audience into a bunch of stuff that the characters aren't aware of, or if you just let the, the, you know, you don't give the audience any really more knowledge than the main character has. I kind of prefer the latter. I think it's more intriguing. Mm-hmm. I think it builds because well, it, it builds, makes you build that. Yeah, yeah, it builds better suspense if I'm just not aware of any additional knowledge. Well, and at this point too, like when you get to the point where where Damon meets Cooper at near the end, where it should be filled with exposition, it's actually filled with a lot more confusion because. Cooper doesn't know he's got amnesia. So he's just talking to him like no. he's, you know, regular. So he's not explaining anything. He's just asking him it's questions. Like, you're like a forty million like, dollar mistake or yeah, whatever it is he yeah. says. Yeah. But he starts off with just like like, what the heck is going on, dude? Like all these different things, and then just never really sits down to to explain it to him. So I think that's I think it's a, a good conscious choice, like like you said. I think it's it makes this a lot more of again, it doesn't feed it to you, doesn't you know, makes you kind of have to figure it out yourself while you're on the way or fill in the gaps and just go along. Like we've given you all the necessary information you need to make this work. We're not going to tell you all the nuts and bolts of it. Any closing, closing thoughts? I need to, need to watch this movie again, apparently, because you have it on Blu-ray. I don't know. I think, I don't think I do. I think I just have it on DVD. It was one of, so it was one of the first DVDs I got. I know because it was around the same time I had like five or six DVDs. One of them was Ocean's Eleven. One of them was this. And I just watched them back to back to back. Just constantly watch these movies. Matt Damon. <laughs> Matt Damon. Yeah. <laughs> we appreciate everybody listening to us kind of meander about and uh, talk badly about the Paul Greengrass versions of this. But at least this was uh, Born Identity. So we'll uh, talk with you next time. Thanks, everybody.